You're listening to the Grace Point Northwest podcast. We hope that you will be encouraged and built up in your relationship with Jesus as you hear the preaching and teaching of God's Word. If Grace Point Northwest is not your home church, it is our heart that this podcast will be supplemental and not a substitute to you belonging to a local church in your community. If we can help you get connected to a church in your community, please let us know. Now we hope you enjoy this message from our Sunday gathering. All right. Good morning, Grace Point. How you doing? Good. If you've got a Bible, go ahead and open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, you're going to need a Bible when you come here because we use the Bible. So if you don't have one, feel free as you leave today, stop by Center Point. You can pick up a free Bible there. We have them but in English and in Spanish. But in the meantime, you can follow along by downloading the Grace Point app or you can check out our screen. Sound good? Scriptures that I'm going to be talking about today are probably going to be up there. Today we're going to be continuing our series through 1 Corinthians that we've called the Imperfect Church. If you were with us last week, you remember that we had a lot in common with the city of Corinth here in Las Vegas. For instance, both of us idolize entertainment. Both of us idolize the arts. We idolize sex, but we also idolize athletics. But one thing that was common and prevalent in Corinth that is also prevalent here in Las Vegas are rivalries. Several years ago, I had an opportunity to go to the Mountain West tournament, basketball tournament, down at the Thomas and Mac. A friend of mine had given me a ticket, and we went down there, and I've got to be honest with you, it was absolutely crazy. The entire place was full of fans who were dressed in jerseys. You had Boise State there. You had Colorado State there. You had UNLV there. And at that time, the school up north called BYU was still in our conference. Now, me being a Kentucky fan, I didn't really have, you know, a dog in the fight, if you will. So I went there just thinking it's going to be a lot of fun, but the same couldn't have been said for my friend. You see, my friend not only went to UNLV, he's a diehard UNLV fan. And as he had his jersey on, as we walked by people, particularly those with BYU jerseys, he would scream out some demeaning thing towards them. Now, that made it a bit awkward for me. You see, many of us, we know rivalries. We're familiar with rivalries. We have rivalries or we know about them. For instance, if I was to put up the logo for the Yankees, who is the rival of the Yankees? The Boston Red Sox, that's right. If I put up the, Co the logo for Coke, what is its rival? Pepsi. If I put up the logo for the Democratic Party, who is its rival? Republican. If I put up the logo for Superman, who is its rival? Batman, no, Lex Luthor, Lex Luthor. Now, if I put up the logo for Apple or Mac, who is its rival? Somebody said no one because they are Mac only, but it's, technically it's Windows. Now, for the kids in the room, if I put up the logo or the picture of Agent P, who is his rival? Dr. Doofenshmirtz, that's right. And if I put up the UNLV mascot, who is its rival? Everyone. Yeah, UNR. But this is one many of us know right now. If I put up the logo for the Golden Knights, who is the Golden Knights rival? The Kings. And we are up two to nothing right now, right? Yeah. So you get the point. But what I want you to notice about all of these rivals is they make sense. Why is that? Because they're on entirely different teams. And therefore, because they are on different teams, they are supposed to be opposed to one another. Paul, however, is going to share with us today that when it comes to the church, rivalries make no sense at all. As a matter of fact, they are ridiculous. Why is that? Because if we follow Jesus, we're not on different teams. We're on the same team. 
And I would argue we are on something so much greater than a team that we belong to a family. That is why Paul is going to share with us today that as Christians, Jesus is to be greater than our preferences, for that will always equal unity. Let me say it again. Jesus is to be greater than our preferences, for that will always equal unity. Look what he says in 1 Corinthians 10. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there, are, there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. As we walk through this letter, we are going to learn things that are just completely outrageous in the, in the church in Corinth. For instance, there is outrageous sexual immorality taking place in this church. Not only that, but within this church, there are Christians that have lawsuits and greed against one another. We're also, by the time we get to chapter 15, we're going to see some in the church basically are having a hard time grasping and accepting the resurrection. Yet before Paul talks about any of those issues, he talks about rivalry. He talks about divisions. Many of us in here would probably prioritize one of those things above something that is lesser, like a rivalry or division. But Paul, however, does not do that, but spends more time focusing on rivalries and division because he knows something that is true, that almost underlaying every single problem in this letter to varying degrees is rivalry and division. It's the common problem. That's why he is going to spend the majority of his time, these first four chapters, talking about rivalry, division, and pushing us towards unity. You see, the word for division in this text literally means to tear. If you take a fabric and you tear it, or you take two things glued together and you rip it apart, you're getting Paul's idea. What is going on in this church are not just little squabbles, but rather these rivalries and these divisions are creating walls that are separating Christians that are close-knit together. That's why he looks at them and says you need to be united. Literally, the word means to mend. It is to fix something that is torn apart. And how are they to do this? By making Jesus greater than their preferences. You see, Paul starts off this part of the section, and how does he address these people? He calls them what? Brothers. He calls them brothers. This means that they are a family. Within Jewish culture, it was not uncommon for them to use familial terms like that to address each other's brother and sister. But in a Greek, in a Gentile context, which is basically you and me, it was very odd. For Paul to call them brothers would almost imagine, you can almost imagine the guys going, are you serious? Wait a second, Paul, we don't have the same parents. As a matter of fact, Paul, you don't have my last name. How can we be in the same family? But Paul is going to tell them that in Christ you are a family along with me. And Paul's going to say, guess what? I am your brother too. That they are family, brothers and sisters in the truest sense of the word. How is that? In Galatians chapter 4, Paul says it like this. He talks about how we become a part of God's family through adoption. Look what he says. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Verse 6. But because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying what? Abba, which means daddy, father. What Paul tells us is in Galatians is the way you and I are adopted into God's family is not by what we do, but about what's been done for us. He says that our adoption has been what? Given to us. It's a gift. 
That what that means is that what Christ did in his perfect life by dying on a cross, not just for you, but instead of you, and rising again from the dead, that through faith and trust in that and that alone, we are brought into the family of God. And Paul says to confirm this, that what God has done is he has sent his spirit, the Holy Spirit, inside of you to do what? To cry out, Abba, Daddy, Father. Now, when my son was born... It was flat out crazy because basically it was my first child. I had no idea what to expect. I'll never forget the morning. My wife looked at me and said, it's time to go to the hospital. And I naively said, I heard these things take a little bit. Is, could I go to the office, grab a few things, maybe come back? And she looked at me and she goes, no, but she's smiling. So we drive to the hospital. We're talking, everything. We get into the parking lot. I look at her. I was like, do you need help or anything like that? She's like, no. I'm good. So we walk through the doors of the hospital. We go right up to the counter to check in. As I go to check us in, I look to my wife to answer a question, and she's not there anymore. But she was actually kind of squatted down. Labor had really, really kicked in. With that, a nurse came over, got a wheelchair, and she ended up wheeling my wife into a room that said custodian closet. Now, what we had found out is the hospital was kind of full. They were running into that consistently, so they took this custodian closet and they turned it into a holding room. Now, here's what we discovered that day. My wife has babies really fast. Within an hour, a little over an hour of being at the hospital, the doctor didn't necessarily make it, but my son was born into a janitor's closet. And before we were on our way to the hospital, we called our parents and said, hey, we're on our way. My mom was down in Phoenix with my dad. And when she heard that, she immediately got in the car and they started rushing up here to Las Vegas. Now, my ringtone at, ring at the time was Beastie Boys. What you, what you, what you want, what you want. Jess's was cake. No phone, no phone. So the entire time the doctor or the nurse is bringing my son into the world, he's being serenaded by Beastie Boys and cake. But when he came out, I remember going up to him and saying, hey, bud. And with that, he let out a cry. And I'll tell you, that cry put tears in my eyes. Why? Because it was a cry for his father. You see, Paul is telling us that when the Spirit comes into our lives, just like a newborn child, we are going to cry out for dad. And since you and I cry out for the same father by the same Holy Spirit, guess what that makes us? Family. You don't get to pick and choose your brother and sister any more than I did. And we don't get to pick and choose who Jesus saves, but we are called to live in unity, in family with them. J.I. Packer says it beautifully in this book, Knowing God. He says it like this. He said, our first point about adoption is that it is the highest privilege the gospel offers. In adoption, God takes us into his family and fellowship. He establishes us as his children and heirs. Closeness, affection, and generosity are at the heart of the relationship. To be right with God the judge is a great thing, but to be loved and cared for by God the Father is a greater. You see, 39 times in 1 Corinthians alone, Paul uses the word brothers. He uses the word brothers more so than he does in any of his other letters. Why is he doing that? I believe he wants to stress the identity, the common identity this church has and their relationship to one another. You see, they're a family. And theologians will argue and I have been in contexts where this is absolutely true, that the church family oftentimes ends up being deeper and more committed than one's own biological family. 
But this church, Paul is saying, is like a fabric that has been broken. It's been torn. He had left them in a state of unity, but when he writes to them, he finds out they're divided. And it breaks his heart and it should break our hearts too. You see, guys, the church is not a team. The church is not the Golden Knights. It's not like the Yankees. The church is deeper than that. The church at its core is a family. We've been brought into the family of God. And when there is disunity and division amongst us, it should grieve us as if it was taking place in our own biological families. Years ago, I remember I got into a conversation right over here at the Tanea Starbucks with a guy. I mean, this guy is like a brother to me. I love him dearly. We do not have the same parents, but we are brothers in Christ. And I remember looking at him sitting at this Starbucks, pleading with him to be reconciled to me and to a group of friends. I mean, we were sitting there. It kind of got loud. It got a little, you know, attention were going towards us. Starbucks employees had to come out and basically say, hey, we're closing. You need to leave. This other couple on the far side was just kind of looking like, what are they doing? But all they just kept hearing me say was, you're my brother. I love you. Don't do this. Just pleading with him. And by the grace of God, his heart changed. And who's to say that here in a month, he's not going to have to do that to me? You see, it should draw us in. It should break our hearts when there's division and disunity amongst us. Paul grounds his, his appeal, if you will, not in his authority, but in the authority of Jesus. Listen to what he says. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. For Paul to state that his appeal by the name of Jesus Christ is to say that it isn't found in his authority alone, but Jesus is literally standing behind this. Many of us know what this is like when we hear our kids say something like, no, dad said it's your turn to pick up the dog poop. Or maybe you've heard your kids say, mom said to turn off the video game and come to dinner. Why are those kids saying that? Why are they invoking the name of mom and dad? Because they know it's not by their authority they can say those statements. Not only that, they want to make very clear that mom and dad are standing behind them. In the same way, Paul is saying Jesus is standing behind this appeal. He didn't make it up, but it's coming from him. So we should pay really careful attention to what he's going to say next. And here's what he says. That all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For Paul to say that you all agree, I believe what he's saying there is, make Jesus greater than your preferences. Why do I believe that? Because it literally means speak the same thing. In this church, what we are going to discover is that the divisions taking place are rooted in people basically pledging to certain teachers, elevating certain teachers while missing the message of those teachers. And when we tend to magnify the messenger and miss the message, what it does is it creates division and disunity within the church. Therefore, Paul says, be reconciled, be united. The word there, men, means to restore, to reconcile, to bring back together. It's a medical term that was used in the Greek time of a broken arm. And this past year, two of my children have broken arms. One of them broke their arm by doing a cartwheel in the backyard. Another one fell off a slide at school. And both times I saw them and they picked up their arms and they were kind of making a funny bend, we knew something was what? Fractured. So what did we do? We rushed to the doctor and what'd they do? They mended it. They reset it. 
Paul is saying, I want you guys to fix these relationships, but I want you to be united in how you do them. That's what he means when he says a same mind and the same judgment. When we tend to think of united, we falsely tend to think of uniformity. But uniformity is basically pseudo-unity. Here's what I mean. Check out what this quote says. It says, a church with uniformity gathers people from the same socioeconomic stratus, stratus, sorry, the same cultural background, the same ethnicity, and the same political aspirations. If the unity is based on something other than Christ, folks attend each week with people just like them, and they miss the joy of true Christian unity. Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 5 that if you and I just merely love those who look like us, act like us, who are basically us, then we're really no different than a tax collector, a Gentile, or anybody else in the world. You see, unity doesn't remove distinctions, but it transcends them. Think about it. None of us in this room can come before God because of our race, our intellect, our gender, or our socioeconomic status. Rather, the only way you and I can come before God is based upon the righteousness of Jesus alone, not our righteousness. And so unity comes when you and I both look to the same Savior and Lord, and His name is Jesus. And I believe nothing shows off the glory of God more so than when a diverse group of people from different backgrounds, ages, socioeconomic statuses come together and unify under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Years ago, when I went over to Africa, I had the opportunity to go to Africa and teach at a leadership conference. And while I was in this room with about a thousand Ugandans, I got done with my session, I walked down the stage, and I engaged in conversation with a bunch of people. I did not realize that the six Americans who were with me had ditched me, had left me, and took off and went back to the hotel. There I was, completely by myself, the only American in a room full of Ugandans. And you know what? It took me about 20 minutes to realize they had left me. Why is that? Because of the unity I had with SP and Alan, these friends of mine. You see, we literally have almost nothing in common worldly. They like to eat plantains, which are basically like bananas that taste like potatoes. I just like potatoes, right? They say gold. SP always told me, he goes, Travis, you need to say gold, not God. Sounds so much holier when you say gold. That's what he would tell me. I mean, there was drastic differences. I grew up in basically Western society. They grew up in Africa. Like, you get the point. We had nothing in common. But that dude is my brother. And he will tell you when he emails me, hello, Travis, how are you doing, brother? And he doesn't mean it like, what's up, bro? We are a family. We don't have everything in common but we have the most important thing in common. And who is that? Jesus. So Paul goes on to push past their sinful preferences. And I want you to notice specifically what he says here, how he found out about this unity. He did not find out about this fraction, this division from the Corinthians, but from somebody else. Look at verse 11. He says, For it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. Notice Paul says again, brothers. Why does he keep calling them brothers? Why is he going to call them brothers 39 times? because he's going to say some really hard things to them. And he wants them to know, one, how he views them, but more importantly, he wants them to know how Jesus views them, that they're a part of the family. 
You see, the Corinthians had sent Paul a letter requesting him to answer a bunch of questions. But when Paul responds, he doesn't start by answering their questions. He starts by answering this problem. Because what was going on? They might have been hiding it. Maybe they didn't think it was that big of a deal. Either way, Paul found out about it from Chloe's people, and it broke his heart. So instead of addressing his questions, more importantly, he addresses the reason for the quarreling. Look what he says, verse 12. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, which is just Aramaic, and that means Peter, or I follow Christ. Paul calls out the issue here, and like we mentioned earlier, what was this church rallying behind? Magnifying preachers while missing the preacher's message. It is important for you and I to understand that according to 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, Jesus has given leaders to his church. These leaders are supposed to serve as under-shepherds to Jesus. Hebrews 13 goes so far as to say that the leaders in the church are going to have to give an account to who? To Jesus for the way in which he leads. Therefore, myself and Pastor Nathan are going to have to give an account before God for the way in which we shepherd, lead, pastor this church. And that's why Paul, when he sees these fractions and these divisions, he looks at it and he goes, we got to fix it. Because Pastor Paul is just trying to be a good pastor here. Now, what were they, what were they dividing over? Several Bible scholars list possibilities. Some of them say that what was basically going on here is some people are saying, I follow Paul because Paul started this church in Acts 18. They look at Paul and they say, well, he's the one who started the church and he probably had a tremendous following. He probably had several, several people come to faith in his ministry. He had been gone for a little bit of time before this was written. And it's almost as if the church is sitting there going, man, we really miss that guy. And when new teachers would come in, they would go, well, he's not like Paul. I mean, there's only one Paul, good old Paul. One theologian says they have taken their eyes off the Lord in the passage of time and are consequently harking back to the good old days. So they're looking at this church saying, I'm a Paul guy. I'm on Paul's team. There were others in the church that followed Apollos. We read of his story in Acts 18. You can follow along here. It says this. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in the Spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. Though he knew only the baptism of John, verse 26, he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through the grace had believed, so they were saved by grace, not by works, verse 28, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. You see, Apollos was a smart dude. He was a wordsmith. He was an apologist. Now, when you hear the word apologist, it's not that Apollos was making an apology, but rather he was defending the faith. And as he would do this, he drew a very strong, robust, intellectual crowd towards him. And they were amazed by him. And so as these divisions started to rise up, some said, I follow Paul. And these people over here going, no, I follow Apollos. And what they are doing is they're magnifying the messenger over his message. There was another group, some who said they followed Cephas, which basically means Peter in Aramaic. 
And we know that Peter went to Corinth. We're going to read about him and his mother-in-law here in a little bit. But as he goes into Corinth, it's possible that some people who are Jewish Christians gravitated towards him because they liked him. They respected his understanding of the Old Testament law and all this. And so basically they said, I'm not Apollos, I'm not Paul, but man, I'm a Peter guy. But then you had a group that said, well, I follow Jesus. And when you look at this, you may go, that's me because that's what I did. That's me. I'm a Jesus guy. I'm not a Paul guy. I'm not a Paulus guy. I'm a Jesus guy. It looks good, but it could be a little bit deceptive. You see, what this could be is an elitist claim. I mean, it's possible that these people are essentially saying, I have Jesus. Who needs leaders? Who needs teachers? Who needs Apollos, Peter, and, and whoever else? Like, I've got Jesus and Jesus alone. One guy says it like this. He said, the Corinthians turned Jesus Christ himself into just another teacher among many. You see, this is true, but it's extremely dangerous. Here's the reason why. When I was living in Utah, I remember being at a restaurant talking to this guy, and I looked at him, and I invited him to church, and here's what he said to me. I've got Jesus, and I've got those mountains. I don't need church. And at first, that sounds absolutely true. But there's no such thing as a Christian who is not a part of a local church. It's just not in the Bible. You see, in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul is going to say there is a spiritual gift of teaching that is to be used in the church. Some of you may have that gift. You look over into 1 Timothy 5, Paul says there's an expectation within the church for pastors and elders who are going to labor over the preaching and teaching of the Word of God. John Piper says it like this in John chapter 2, or 1 John 2, he says, There is no thought here that the anointing of the Holy Spirit would replace the knowledge of Christ that comes by hearing, teaching. And neither does it mean it to be the case that a relationship with Jesus would negate the need for somebody to teach. What Paul is saying is that none of us in this room should ever magnify a particular preacher and miss their message. Because at the end of the day, it's not about the preacher. It's not about how eloquent they are, how smart they are, how simple they are. It's always and only about who? Jesus. Jesus alone. And we can't take this elitist stat status and go, well, I only need Jesus and turn him just simply into another teacher like them. But rather, we need to look at the message that comes through them all. It's obvious that the, the, the discrepancy wasn't doctrinal. It's preferential. People are simply saying, I'm with this guy. I'm for this guy. I don't need that guy. Building division, building cliques within the church of God. And it was almost as if their attachment to that teacher wasn't to make that teacher great, but they're attaching themselves to that teacher to make themselves great. One guy says it like this. He says, converts tend to align themselves with the evangelists under whom they have been won to faith. And because they've been won to faith by this particular person, they weren't even going to give a hearing to another guy. Either way, the question we have to ask ourselves is this. What are we dividing over? You see, many of us tend to create division not, and rivalries not only over particular preachers, but other preferences as well. When you think about the church of God and the division that is in God's church and Jesus' church, some of us go there right to the preacher preference. We say, I'm a Tim guy, I'm a Tom guy, I'm an Antonio guy, I'm a Nathan guy, I'm one of these guys, I'm with them. 
But the question Paul is going to ask is, did any of them die for you? No. And I will tell you with the full confidence of each of those men, if the reason you follow me or them is because of who we are, that will crush us. And we will do what Paul is doing here and push you right back to Jesus because what you're going to discover is preachers will always somehow let you down. It's just going to happen. Some of us are music preference people. We say there's not enough hymns or they don't sing enough of the Christian radio hits. We're essentially saying, when are they going to sing the song that I like? Some of us are program preference people. There's no Awana. There's no women's groups, men's groups, singles retreats. When are they going to put me around people that are like me? And what does Paul, what does Matt, Jesus say in Matthew 5? That if we love those who are just like us, we're really no different than the world. This one's really relevant to us right now. What about environment preferences? When's that church going to get a building? Right? When am I going to be comfortable? When am I going to have my needs met? This one is really prevalent. Size preferences. I mean, how big is this church going to get anyway? Some of us like smaller churches because we can be known by everyone. Some of us like bigger churches because we can hide. And I can remember having a conversation with a friend of mine. Started a church. We were rolling about 70 people. He had come from a very large church. He had covenanted, covenant partnership with us. And in that conversation with him, him basically looking at us, at me and saying, I don't want to be a part of you guys because you're just not big enough for me. That was crushing. The community group that I was a part of, they didn't go good riddance. They actually grieved that because what was this brother saying? I don't like you anymore. I'm out. You see, the church is not basically Sam's Club. The church isn't Costco. Thank God the gas line's terrible. But what it is, it's a family. You're not a member in the state where you say, what can this church do for me? You're a member in the state of family. And in a family, what do people do? They take, they receive, but they also give. Sadly today, many Christians, Christ followers, leave a church that preaches Jesus but doesn't meet their preferences for a church that meets their preferences but doesn't preach Jesus. And that's sad. I remember having another conversation with this guy who didn't like the particular worship of the church I was serving at. And we were sitting there at a Starbucks, we were talking, because I tend to drink a lot of coffee, a little too much. And as I'm talking to him, I said, why are you leaving? He goes, it's just not my style. I said, well, what do you mean by that? He goes, it's just not my style of music. And I just looked at him, I was like, are you crazy? Well, I knew at that time, there was this band called Under Oath. They had a drummer named Aaron Gillespie. He put out a worship album. And I looked right at him, I said, well, let me ask you a question. Let's say you go to this other church doesn't have real robust Bible teaching. They're not necessarily centered completely on Jesus, but man, Aaron Gillespie is there, and he's singing, would you go? And he said, absolutely. And I looked at him, and I said, you know why? And he said, why? I said, because Aaron Gillespie is your God, not Jesus. And he went, oh. And his buddy next to me went, oh, I can't believe you said that. And then he was like, dang, you're right. <laughs> like he just started going at him. But it's true, guys. Aaron Gillespie didn't die for him. He wouldn't even thinking about it, and he wouldn't do it if he had the opportunity. But it's got to be only about Jesus. 
It says unity in the local church cannot be based on race, class, or socioeconomic circumstances, nor can it be based on particular preferences of certain groups. The only common factor in an otherwise diverse Christian congregation such as Corinth is every member's relation to Jesus Christ. That's why Paul drills it in deep. Verse 13, look what he says. Is Christ divided? Was Christ crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I mean, these are good questions. But the question he's asking, is Christ divided? I would answer no, Jesus is not divided. Why? Because the second question is an emphatic no. Jesus cannot be portioned out and put a little bit over here, a little bit over here, a little bit over here. But rather, when we come into Jesus, we get all of Jesus. We get the whole thing. It's not like we get a part of his arm or some of his legs. One guy says it like this. This incidentally throws light on such a common phrase as, I'm wanting more of Jesus. He says, it cannot be. We should rather be allowing Christ to have more of us. Paul says, was Paul crucified for you? Was he crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? And the answer is emphatically no. Perhaps we need to fill in this question with our preferences. Who's the name you would put in there that you follow? Some of us would put in a preacher here at Grace Point. Some of us might put in a popular podcast like a Matt Chandler or John Piper or Francis Chan. Maybe the person we would put in there is somebody popular on TV like Andy Stanley or Joel Olstein. But the question Paul is asking, do any of those people have the power to forgive your sin? No. Did any of them live a perfect life that was gifted to you in order to make you right before God? No. Will they, what they did have the power to raise you from the dead? The answer is no. They can't do it. Therefore, he's trying to focus their eyes on Jesus, sacrifice their preferences, elevate Jesus, because what is that going to result in? Unity. You see, Paul is trying with everything in him to push the people past their preferences to see Jesus. Even when you look at the idea of baptism, there is within the Bible this understanding that when you get baptized, you're trusting in Christ and Christ alone. As you go under the water, you're identifying with his death for you. As you come up out of your water, you're trusting in his life, his resurrected life for you. But in 1 Corinthians 12, it says that not only are we baptized into Jesus, but our baptism symbolizes that you and I belong to the same family called the church. That we don't get vertical peace, if you will, without also getting horizontal peace with one another. And it's only the cross of Christ that can do that. Paul is pushing us not to put our hope in the preferences, that preferences become idols. Because as C.S. Lewis says, idols will always break the hearts of their worshipers. Like I said, a preacher's gonna let you down. Guess what? A particular song is gonna lose its luster. This church might get too big or it might stay too small. We don't get a choice in that matter. But what do we need to do? Focus our eyes upon Jesus because he's the only one that's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Some of you guys heard me talk about my kids when they were younger and they would FaceTime. They would FaceTime down to Grammy. And what always cracked me up is every time they would FaceTime Grammy, they would look in this little box up to the left. And why were they looking at that little box up to the left? Because they were in it. And so my mom's on the computer going, what are they looking at? Because they're always looking up this way. There's Grammy on the big screen, right? But what are they focused on? Their little self. In the same way, when we elevate our preferences above Jesus, we're taking eyes, our eyes off the big screen, which is Christ, 
and we're looking upon our little screen as the only thing to satisfy us, when right there on the biggest screen is everything our hearts long for and desire. Paul finishes it up like this. He says, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross be empty, or unless the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Paul's not saying baptism isn't important here. What he is doing is he's pledging, he's showing what baptism is a dedication to. When you get baptized, you are pledging your allegiance to Christ and Christ alone. You don't get baptized into the name of the person baptizing you. You're baptized in the name of the only one who can save you. Therefore, Paul is committed to preaching that name relentlessly to all who hear. So Grace Point Church Northwest, if you get anything out of this, it's this. Jesus is better. Jesus is better than any of our preferences. You see, may we be a church that will set aside preferences for the sake of unity. And may we be a church that will not settle for uniformity, but strives for unity. I love what Richard Baxter says. He says it like this. He says, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. You see, this is an imperfect church. And we find ourselves in an imperfect church. But guess who we are all following? A perfect Savior. And this perfect Savior loves us enough to push into the things that are dividing us back to Him who will unite us. So let's pray.